Hi, welcome back to Excited, episode 210. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetsmanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fulman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fulman? I'm not too bad. How about yourself? I'm I'm doing well. Um, in the midst of uh, another depressing North American or Northeastern winter. Um, but, you know, the days are getting longer. It's all upside from here on out. Yeah, that's the thing to focus on. January sucks in this part it really of the does. world. It's just, it's bad. No one's having a good time. But we have a brighter future ahead. A future in which we're going to pay William Nylander a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, God, my segues have just gotten so good, eh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, you know, that's why we're professionals. Yeah, that's veteran podcasting right there for you kids at home. Uh, so yeah, we're going to talk today about the William Nylander extension, as well as some potential trade candidates in the second part of the episode. Um, we decided to go a little bit long on this one. Uh, we're going to try to really pin this down uh, in some detail. So hopefully that leads to something that's kind of clear and authoritative, um, or at least distracts you while you're out walking your dog. So without further ado, let's get started on the William Nylander extension. Before we talk about the actual dollars and cents, I wanted to start with a brief reminder of what goes into an NHL contract. For a player in Nylander's position, there are really only four negotiable contract terms. A lot of this stuff is standardized by the CBA, so you can't really take the language in or out. It's very heavily restricted. And the four things that you need to worry about and that we're going to talk about are these. First, the number of years. Obviously, this is the term. It can be up to eight if it's an extension with your existing team. It can be up to seven if it's not. Um, second, the amount of money and when it is paid. Uh, as a note on that, it is possible to vary the salary year over year to some extent. You can't do it insanely because teams used to do that to set up deals that players were expected to retire out of, but you're allowed to make it so it is more front loaded than back loaded or vice versa. Um, this deal is front-loaded, and front-loaded deals are beneficial to the player because of the time value of money. money Especially in yeah. like a high-interest rate environment like we have right now, where like you know, William Nylander has access to you know investment options that probably most of us don't have. But mm-hmm. even if you're like a rube and you can get like five percent interest or something, it's better to have money now than to delay the same money to like a year from now. Exactly. Like you can turn that money into a larger amount of money by the time you would be just collecting the starting amount if you had a more delayed salary structure. So yeah, front-loading is good. And as noted, Nylander's contract is front-loaded. Next up, signing bonuses, where some of the money is paid in a lump sum, usually on July 1st. Not always, but that's typically what happens. Um, Same thing. If you get all the money in one big check at the start of the year, that allows you to deposit it and do what you like with it. It also means you just don't have to be patient, which has a value all its own. Um, Also worth noting that, mm -hmm. um, so people talk about like tax reasons for various teams or, um, you know, localities having advantages in in signing players. I think that stuff often gets oversimplified. Taxes are complicated, especially when you're talking about pro athlete taxes, which are like famously kind of weird and you're talking about 
people who sometimes are Canadian, sometimes are American, sometimes are Swedish in the case of William Nylander. Um, and, you know, all of these things and various like tax treaties between these countries change things. One other thing that changes things is that if you have a signing bonus, um, I believe it's taxed in whatever you declare your place of residence to be. Mm. So as opposed to it being taxed necessarily as like salary earned in Ontario or salary earned, you know, in Florida, if you're a Panther or lightning player. Um, so that also presents some opportunities depending on what players claim their principal residences. Yeah. That's just something I want to say as an aside. And uh, Kathy at pension plan puppets has consistently pointed this out when people just say, Oh, this player in a low tax jurisdiction is paying this much. And this player in a high tax environment has to make this much to make it equivalent. You might be broadly correct as to who's paying more and who's paying less, but it is nowhere near that simple. And if not knowing anything about the two players' tax treatments, you assume you know the amount of money that's different. You are kind of whistling, Dixie. Yes. There's also, like, I mean, I know this is the case in Texas, for example. Texas has no state income taxes, but, um, I mean, like, the government still needs money. Mm -hmm. Um, So property taxes there are very high. Right. So if you're a player who ends up purchasing a house, you, you know, that gets passed on to you essentially in in, in a different way. And probably if you're a renter as well, I, mm-hmm. I assume like landlords there would pass through at least some portion of the property tax expenses there. So anyways, the, the, the point is, um, this is difficult to know from afar. It probably matters to some extent. It probably does not explain millions and millions of dollars of difference. Right. Uh, One other point about signing bonuses before we move on. It makes the contract harder to buy out. Buying out a contract reduces the remaining value by two-thirds and spreads it over twice the remaining term. But that only applies to salary. It doesn't apply to bonuses. So when you have a lot of signing bonuses remaining on a contract, that money is effectively locked in. That means that the team gets less benefit from buying it out, both in terms of the cap hit and in terms of the um, actual money savings. And it makes it less likely that you're going to be bought out. Um, Again, a contract with like William Nylanders, obviously everyone is hoping it's not going to ever be a consideration that you buy it out when you sign a deal of this magnitude. Um, And it does decline a bit, so it's not inconceivable they might do it at the end. But just to note that signing bonuses complicate that process. It's also true that I don't think any team signs a contract and goes, oh, we'll, we'll buy this out in a few years. <laughs> That's true. Uh, although sometimes I wonder if it's crossed Lou Lamorello's mind, but I don't know. Um, finally, the fourth thing that we want to talk about, new movement clauses and no trade clauses. And like it says on the tin, a no movement clause means You can't be waived or traded. You stay on the team unless you're willing to waive that clause and say, yeah, okay, trade me according to my conditions. Um, As we've seen plenty of times in the past, sometimes this amounts to, I just want veto power over where you trade me to when the the time comes because the player can always waive it. But as we've also seen in Toronto in the past, uh, if you can think back to the infamous Muskoka 5 era, sometimes that means... I don't want to move. Now, uh, these can be combined with a no-trade clause uh, as well, so that they're still protected against being waived, but later on in the deal, 
maybe there are openings in terms of trade options. So you can have a deal where towards the end, uh, the no movement clause sort of decays to a no movement plus a 15 team NTC. So you can be traded to half the league in the last year of the contract. Uh, in William Nylander's case, it does not change ever. It's a no move all the way through. But that's one of the things that we will be talking about. So to sum up, four things that matter. Term, money, signing bonuses, trade clauses. Okay? With that said, what did our boy William Nylander get? Nylander signed for eight years at $11.5 million per season with the contract effective July 1st, 2024. Um, cap Friendly has that as 13.77% of the cap. I think they're using this year's, possibly. Uh, Chris Johnson says it's 13.12. Um, there's a full no move, as I mentioned, all the way through the deal. So if he does not want to play for another team in the NHL, he's probably not going to. Um 75% of the deal is paid out in signing bonuses. That's a lot, as you're going to see. Um, Nylander is going to have the fifth biggest cap hit in the NHL next year. So that's going to be behind Austin Matthews, Nathan McKinnon, Connor McDavid, and Artemi Panarin. And he's going to be tied with Eric Carlson, who's splitting his cap hit between the San Jose Sharks and the Pittsburgh Penguins. Woo! Okay. So is that more than we would think it is? Yes. In a word, yes. <laughs> and you say, well, compared to what? Now, to give Nylander credit, he's played well enough, especially lately, that there aren't a ton of players who are in his tier. But there are some. Um, he's not in the Connor McDavid class, where he essentially has no comparables. He's not in the Austin Matthews class, where his only comparables are maybe a better Connor McDavid or Nathan McKinnon. He's comparable to his buddy, David Pasternak. So Pasternak signed last year for an extension effective July 1st, 2023 for eight years at 11.25 million. You're going to note that even in sticker value, that's a quarter of a million less a year. So 13.64 of the cap at the time, just over 30% of that contract is paid in bonuses. And the NMC decays to a no-trade clause with fewer and fewer restrictions over the last three years. So it's going to be possible, if it comes to that, for Boston to look at trades towards the end of the deal. And and just to remind of the those terms, those equivalent terms for, for Nylander, 75% of his contract is paid out in bonuses, and the NMC is just an NMC the whole way through. Exactly. Um, Pasternak feels kind of like an apt comparable uh, they came into the league both as offensively gifted wingers drafted in 2014, and they're also good friends. Uh, it's not impossible to me that a bit of friendly rivalry played a role in the Nylander negotiation. That's speculative. But if your buddy who you view as a lot like you gets this amount, you might start using that as a sort of mental line for what you think you should get. Um the Leafs basically gave Nylander a gen more generous version of the Pasternak deal. And that's kind of unfortunate because Pasternak is a better player. Yes, that's <laughs> that's the reality. I wish it weren't so. Uh, it pains me to give credit to any Boston Bruin, as listeners of this podcast will know. But the facts are the facts. He's outscored William in almost every season of their careers. William finished three points ahead of him in 21-22 in nine more games. 
Pasternak shows is better defensively, which might be floated by the Boston defensive juggernaut to some extent. But he also shows as a super elite finisher. Like, Pasternak is one of the five best goal scorers on the planet. Pasternak's um, won a rocket. Yes. Uh, he's had more goals than Nylander every year, sometimes a lot more. Last year, he had 61. That's a lot of fucking goals. <laughs> it's a lot of goals. And I know, like, 60 goals has had a bit of the shine taken off it because now three people have done it in the last um, few seasons, and Austin Matthews has a reasonable chance to do it again this year. So, like, we're in a high offense year, mm-hmm. or high offense era, I should say. But, like, there's no world where 61 goals is not really impressive. Yeah. Let's look at the five names of guys who have scored 60 goals since the 05 lockout. Alex Ovechkin, Steven Stamkos, Austin Matthews, Connor McDavid, David Pasternak. That's pretty heady company. Like, there are four guys on that list who are going to be Hall of Famers. I am very confident, at least. And Pasternak has, like, a real shot at it, too. Yeah, I'm not saying he won't be. Um, Even with Willie crushing it this season, Pasternak is still ahead of him in goal scoring. Like, Pasternak is having a fringe... Maybe not even fringe, like, heart trophy-ish season for the Boston Bruins, who, despite what the standings might tell you, have actually decayed a bit since they lost their top two centers. But Pasternak has just kept on trucking. By the um, way, um, Pasternak's most common line mates are Pavel Zaka, uh, Brad Marchand, and, like, Jake DeBrusque. So, like, Marchand is not what he used to be at this point. Mm-hmm. Zaka and DeBrusque are fine players, but, you know, no one's mistaking them for elite all-stars. Yeah. Like, are any of those go- players as good as John Tavares right now? I would lean no. Certainly none of them are as good as Austin Matthews. Oh, my apologies. He's also played a bunch with Morgan Geeky. Oh, well, then that's basically rolling out the red carpet to 60 goals. So, yeah, you can see Pasternak has undeniably been great. Um, And unfortunately, we're paying Nylander as if he's better than this guy who he probably isn't better than. So, one thing to note, um, Pasternak was signed last year. So, the first year of his cap hit is under this year's cap, which was essentially flat. I think it went up by like a relatively small amount from last year to this year. Nylander's um, will be first year of his contract will be under a cap that's expected to go up by a couple million. I think like four million or so. Mm-hmm. So there is some like cap inflation there, right? Um, by percentage of cap hit, Nylander did get less, a little bit less than Pasternak. Um, however, it's you know, kind of important to note that Percentage of cap hit in the first year of the cap is, like, not exactly the thing that matters. It's, like, sort of some average over the percentage of the cap that you get across each of the years of the contract. Mm -hmm. And with Pasternak's deal, you know, it was expected, even at the time that Pasternak signed this deal, that the NHL cap would increase, not necessarily next year, but certainly the year after. By this point, I think he signed his deal in March 2023. By that point, Batman said, if the escrow isn't paid off this year, it'll be paid off next year, and then the cap will, you know, resume kind of the, the track it was on before, of, you know, going up by multiple millions each year. So it wasn't like, oh, this is a flat cap environment, and Pasternak's deal is going to stay about 13.7% of the cap the rest of the way. Like, it was expected, oh, this is going to increase a fair bit and like if you're Pasternak's agent you then say well you know if I'm targeting a certain average percentage of the cap hit across the life of this deal you know like yeah the cap hit 
the cap in the first year is going to be low, but it's going to be higher in years thereafter. And I want to be compensated for that. Exactly. Even if it, even if that's like a little bit tricky to fit in in year one, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's not the same as a contract that was signed, you know, in 2019, mm-hmm. you know, right as the pandemic was about to hit. Yeah. Uh, and something else that is worth noting, you can see that expectation of a cap rise in tons of contract negotiations. And easy example close to home, Tyler Bertuzzi. If Tyler Bertuzzi wanted to, he could have gotten more years than he did. He took a one year despite being a desirable free agent because he expects the cap is going to go up. And he hopes to get a raise on his next contract, the one that is going to run for more term. So everyone has been operating for a while now on the assumption that there's going to be a big cap increase. I see a lot of people saying, oh, well, yeah, okay, Nylanders are getting paid a lot, but the cap's going to go up. Everyone else is going to have that same change that they're operating under. It's not like the cap just goes up for the Toronto Maple Leafs, much as we wish it did. Um, You're competing against teams who get exactly the same benefit and who have been operating under exactly that same expectation. Uh, So one other comparable, Sebastian Ajo, who is the center, first line center, for the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, He signed last summer for an extension effective July 1st, 2024. So it starts the same day as William B. Landers does. At eight years at 9.75 million. So 11.68% of the cap. Uh, 20% of the contract is in signing bonuses. Again, not 75. Uh, Carolina is also famously kind of a cheap team. uh, To some extent, like they're kind of infamous for trying to really work down their players. You may recall that Sebastian Ajo actually signed an offer sheet from the Montreal Canadiens as the course of a negotiation. Apparently didn't leave any hurt feelings, though. Um, There's a full no movement until the last year when it decays into a 15-team no trade. So again, if Carolina wants to trade this out at the end of the deal, they're in a position to do that to some extent. Um... And as you've noted here, yeah, the cap's going to go up. And uh, yeah, I expected that. This is... So no contract signing is exactly apples to apples because players are individuals, teams are different, they're in different contexts, they have different ownership, all that sort of thing. Um, however, this gets pretty darn close to apples to apples. Mm-hmm. There's no issue with like the years not matching up, right? Like I, I don't think this is a huge deal for like the passionate contract, but if you want to say, oh, you know... That, that first year, you know, uh, kind of very low cap relative to the rest of the, the, the year's expectation changes things a lot. Well, that's not the case for Ajo. Both the Leafs and the Canes are contenders. The Canes have had more success both in the regular season and in the postseason. Mm-hmm. Um, both of these players, I think, are at a pretty similar tier in the league where they are, like, clearly good first liners, mm-hmm. but not in the absolute elite tiers of players like, you know, Matthews, McDavid, McKinnon, Elias Pettersson, um, Matthew Kachuk. You know, th- there's there's a lot of similarities here. And mm-hmm. there's a, you know, $1.75 million gap between the AAVs on the same term, in addition to the other things that, that you mentioned, such as, you know, the, the no-move clause and signing bonuses. Right. Um. Also, Ajo is a regular center, and centers are generally considered more valuable than wingers. I think generally correctly. Now, I I mean, there's an interesting hypothetical here. If Nylander had come up in the 
Kane's organization and Aho had come up in the Leafs organization. I suspect Nylander would have played more center and possibly Aho would have played more wing. But the fact is that this is what Aho does. And that's worth something. Now, Willie did outproduce him last year pretty solidly. 20 points. That's not nothing. And if I'm his agent, that's all I say. Anytime someone raises some other issue, I shout 20 more points, 20 more points. Um, and Willie's ahead of him this year, although I was having a great season. Um, you can debate who's better. As Arvin said, you know, like they're close. Um, it looks like kind of a dead heat to me. Which means that it's not great that we're paying a lot more than the other guy. Right. If you look at goals above replacement, which I don't think is perfect, but does, a, I think, a reasonable job at um, sorting players, at least roughly speaking, they have, you know, Aho and Elander is very similar to each other for the last three years. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's accurate. Like, I think, you know, depending on team context, depending on, your, on a, a bunch of things, you might prefer one of these guys versus the other. But I don't think it's obvious that one is a lot better than the other, but one's getting paid $1.75 million more. And, like, you know, $1.75 million more is quite a bit Mm -hmm. you know there's a fair bit like that takes you up a notch in terms of free agent targets you know it this is just a hypothetical example so you don't have to like you know mapped onto this specifically but you know if the Leafs are able to offer Ryan O'Reilly almost two million more uh over the course of his deal or per year sorry maybe he's like uh maybe I do want to stay in Toronto then you know Mm -hmm. if, if it's if it's a lot more than I'm getting elsewhere right and that's just a specific example. Like, it, it, it that's, you know, th- we don't have to get, like, wedded to that particular idea. But the point is $1.75 million per year matters a lot. Yeah, it's a different tier of player, I think, that you're bidding in. Um, you know, that's almost the difference between Bertuzzi and Max Domi, um, to take another example, between offensive-minded free agents. So, yeah, I mean, again, if you use this as a comparable at all, the Leafs didn't do so well here. Um, there's one possible sort of future comparable, which is Sam Reinhardt. Uh, Sabres Kevin, friend of the podcast, has always noted that the two have certain similarities in their profiles, even though they're different players. Um, he's having a breakout year. At the moment, he has 31 goals, which is absolutely bonkers. Now, he's on a heater, but still, um, he's absolutely lighting the league up for the Florida Panthers. He hasn't signed an extension yet. It will be interesting to see what he gets. And if he goes to market, but my suspicion is he's going to make less than Nylander. And some, I think a fair bit less, yeah. yeah. Now, again, we talked about the tax treatment. Well, yeah, you can probably save more on your taxes in Florida, but I think it's going to be a lot. <laughs> so we'll see. It depends on how real people buy uh, this goal spike as being and how yeah. much of it is continued by the time he puts ink to paper. Reinhardt's also been like roughly at Nylander's level, like not just this year. This year is like a huge offensive spike for Reinhardt, but Reinhardt's always been like a pretty good defensive player mm-hmm. and a strong play driver. And a chunk of his value is tied up there. And I think the reality is that matters. Like points still get paid, even though teams do pay lip service to, you know, defense mattering. Mm-hmm. It, it is worth noting. I do think players separate themselves more with their offensive ability than their defensive ability, mm-hmm. even for defenders. Right, like Kale McCarr is the best defender in the world because he has game-breaking offensive upside. Right, um, and you know Connor McDavid is a lot better offensively than he is defensively. There's like more room for skill expression on the offensive side, but I think defensive value still gets underrated relative to offensive value. And Nylander provides 
you know, 95% of his value on the offensive end mm-hmm. and got paid accordingly. Right. And I don't think there's any getting around that. Uh, we could go on and on about trying to dig up more comparables. I think that this is a pretty fair assessment. It's just we paid more. And we paid more on all of those four terms uh, compared to players who were like or even slightly better than William Nylander. Um, so what happened in this negotiation? Obviously, we're kind of breaking it down from the outside. We weren't in the room. We don't know what was said. But a good starting point is what Justin Bourne uh, said about it. What could Nylander's camp conceivably have asked for here that they didn't get? It looks like every negotiable point went to the benefit of the player. He got mm-hmm. more term, more money, earlier money, and fuller trade protection than his peers. Also, just to note, um, Nylander's at the part of the age curve where term is pretty much exclusively beneficial to the player and not the team. Right. That eighth like year maybe... is coming when he's 35. Right. And we talked about this a bit with Matthews, where it's like, you know, and Matthews is, again, it's a little bit different because he's descending from a much higher height than William Nylander is. And again, that's not a knock on William Nylander. That's mm. just like, that's how good Austin Matthews is. Um where you're like, okay, maybe we do want to get, like, the, you know, the thir- age 35 of Matthews might still be, like, a pretty good first liner because he's descending from, you know, near best player in the world territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not really the case for, you know, what I'll call, like, a, a good first liner in Elander. Right. You know, a- as you said, at age 35, it's, you know, kind of unlikely that Nylander is, is worth this money. And, you know, you don't have to look very far to see the example of this. It's John Tavares. John Tavares, again, had higher heights than William Nylander has had. Mm-hmm. Tavares was nominated for the Hart twice, was a point off an Art Ross trophy, you know? And at age, I think he's 32 or 33 now. 33. Uh, he's, you know, not... He, he's, he's a good player still, but he is not anywhere near what he used to be. Yeah, and And he's not worth his deal. And Yeah, yeah that's they, how it we, goes. Yeah, so term in this case helps the player more than it helps the team. You're paying for decline years. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, like, you know, I'm not so militant about they did the O'Neal Landers. Like, the drop-off between 30 and 31 is going to be enormous. We've seen a lot of players um, in the modern NHL, especially elite ones, maintain their production relatively similarly in their early 30s. Artemi Panarin, who we mentioned earlier, is actually a great example. Um, but, you know, when you get to 34, 35... I think it's pretty hard to argue against decline there. Yeah. And you noted this. Everyone thinks that their player is going to be the one who ages like wine. Um, Most players don't. A few of them age like milk. But we can look at the average case and we can say, yeah, he's going to be worse at the end of this deal than he is at the beginning of it. And to some extent, that's fine. But when you give him that eighth year and you don't get anything back for it, that is suggestive of a lost negotiation. To look at it in the reverse case, what is the argument that this is in any way team friendly? Like, what is the element that the team got something here that indicates that they negotiated well for it? Well, they kept the player, and I do not denigrate that. That's worth a lot, and we'll talk about that. But basically, that was it. Everything else went to Nylander's camp. Every single point. This so, yeah. read to me less like a negotiation and more like Nylander and his agent kind of having a wish list and accurately reading the Leafs and realizing 
they do not want to lose us. They don't even want to risk losing us. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, the Leafs didn't set out on this process expecting it would end this way. So we have a few sort of tidbits from different reporters that we can piece together. Uh, the Leafs were in discussions with Nylander last summer that did not bear fruit. As per Chris Johnson, the Leafs opened with Philip Forsberg as a comparable, citing the 8 by 8.5 million deal he signed in 2022. You factor in a bit of cap inflation, maybe that gets you to 9 flat. Um, Nylander's camp opened much higher. Comments from Pierre Lebrun suggest that they might have been aiming around 8 by 11 million. And discussions went quiet. So I think at that point, the Leafs saw that there was a huge gap and they said, let's wait and see. And in the interim, William Nylander tore the league apart. <laughs> um, there are certain elements of it that where you can say like, look, they obviously didn't foresee that he was going to have the best half season of his career mm -hmm. um, to give him some credit. But the thing is, is that when you walk away from that moment and say, okay, let's wait and see, you are kind of counting on his price coming down. And if you're going to do that, you have to recognize your own desperation a little bit. If what you know in your heart is, we are not going to let ourselves lose this player, then you have to recognize that as he approaches free agency, your position gets worse because you're closer to losing him. And so I think it's not so much that they were necessarily wrong to back away from that deal as that it was too clearly kind of a posture. Like they knew that they were going to probably do whatever they could to sign the player. And they were just hoping that he would come back in their direction, but he didn't. And this was the outcome. Um, so yeah, we'll talk about briefly that half season. Well, uh, this is the best half season of Nylander's career. I think you can say that in the course of this half season, he's played like maybe a top five forward in the world for most of it. I have it. a question. I, 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 I would disagree. I think, okay, so he's in the top 10 in point scoring in the league, right? Which is yeah. like, obviously really, really good. Really impressive. Mm -hmm. He has the same amount of points as Connor McDavid. Yeah. You know, that happens at any point. You're, you're very happy. Even in this half season, I don't think Nina has been a top 10 forward in the league. Not even top 10. I th there's a lot of really good forwards, man. <laughs> it's true. You're not wrong. Like um, off the top of off the top of my head, yeah. just trying to name guys who I think, you know, at least have a pretty good case to being above Neander, even over this half season. Kucherov, McKinnon, Pasternak, McDavid, Matthews, Panarin, Pedersen, Rantanen. Reinhardt has a, has a shot. Aho, as we covered, is like pretty close. Yeah. Right? Like, Jack Hughes has missed a bunch of time, but like has been really good. Barkov, you know, yeah, it's not obvious he's there. Yeah, okay. So I mean, I would say, even if I'm arguing that he's been mm -hmm. in that tier, it's a lot harder to argue that he is in that tier in the sense of like, do you think that he's genuinely better than all of those players or any of those players? Right. I, I I didn't mention JT Mitter is a guy who's, you know, similarly offensively talented, but I don't think anyone is putting him in like a top 10 forwards in the league discussion. And I think yeah. rightly so. He's a very, very good player who is, I think, not quite at that level. And I think Nina is kind of similar to that. Yeah. Um, 
the reality is that we have a pretty good idea of what William Nylander is at this point in time. He's 27 years old. He's not at that point of his career where he's probably taking big leaps. If his new level is, I'm 110 point forward, great. Then this deal is going to look pretty much fine, I guess, as long as he sustains that. But this is the first time, this season will be the first time, we think, that he's actually broken 90 points in a season. Like, this is not the air he's been breathing in the seasons prior to this one. And a lot of crazy stuff can happen for 40 games in the NHL. Um, talking about, a bit more about negotiation process, Nylander and his agent, Louis Gross, famously went to the wall on their previous negotiation. I'm sure everyone remembers that Nylander signed in December like five minutes before the deadline where he wouldn't have been able to play that season. Um, Michael Nylander was a hard negotiator in his own right as a player, and Elliot Friedman has suggested that he was influential in this process. Um, and Nylander had the ability to go to unrestricted free agency and chase seven years from any other team. He would have gotten seven years for sure. He couldn't have gotten eight years, as we've talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, he would have sparked a bidding war and he would have gotten paid. Would he have gotten paid this much? It doesn't seem like it. When you combine everything, like the entire package, probably not. So like on a seven-year mm -hmm. to match the uh, total dollar value of the Leafs contract, it would he'd have to get paid uh, over $13 million, which he wasn't getting for sure. Um, now that's not exactly fair because what you really have to do is compare it to what you expect Nylander to get as another as a, uh, for his fourth contract as a UFA at age thirty five. But that's really really hard to predict. Yeah. Right. It could be zero. He would be out of the league. Mm -hmm. It could be five million dollars. Yeah. It's probably right. not eleven five. No, like, that's very unlikely. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Like I think. I think Nylander would have gotten a lot, mm -hmm. and. He would have gotten a contract that I think is, is even then, maybe like a little rich. But I don't think every single negotiable point in the deal would have gone this the way that, uh, to, towards him the way that it did. And I think part of this is, you know, agents and players know the Leafs can afford this sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I feel like the Leafs have done the uh, front-loading and signing bonus with, like, almost every major player they've signed a contract to. And even players who are, like, not that major. Mm-hmm. And they have either not appeared to get any significant AAV discounts for this, or those AAV discounts are taking preposterous contracts and making them merely above average. Yeah, it's, it's kind of brutal. And so I saw a documentary once on poker. It was called Casino Royale. I learned a lot. Uh, but there was a saying in that film that you don't play your hand, you play the man across from you. Um, gender bias of James Bond aside, that's kind of what happens here. And so if you're Lewis Gross, negotiator slash poker player, and you look at Brad Treliving on the other side of the table, you say, he's running a team that sees itself absolutely as having to contend every year because it's got Austin Matthews right now signed for the next four. And also this is Brad Treliving who just left the Calgary Flames and just experienced the uh, management trauma of watching Johnny Gaudreau walk to free agency for nothing. And to avoid that, he made a 
now infamous trade of Matthew Kachuk to the Florida Panthers for Jonathan Huberdeau and Mackenzie Weger. And then he signed Jonathan Huberdeau to a massive term contract set on scene to avoid um, being caught in a similar situation where he risked losing that free agent for nothing. Well, now the Huberdeau deal is one of the worst in the NHL, possibly the worst. And He also signed Uyghur to a similar deal, and Uyghur was good last year, but I think he's fallen off a bit this year. Like Even that part of the trade, which looked better at the start, has like not looked as good now. No, it's From what brutal. I recall, I, I haven't kept up on exactly how Uyghur's doing, but... Yeah, no, it's it's not great. And I suspect Louis Gross remembers the Jonathan Huberdeau deal very well because he's Huberdeau's agent too. <laughs> so I think if you're uh, Nylander's agent and you come into the situation, you think regardless of the fact that all these comparables and all this fancy nerd stuff says that he should be worth this much and he should get this, they are desperate. And we can keep insisting because they are afraid to lose us. We brought this up in the when we talked about Austin Matthews' contract, um, that you can have all these rational arguments for why Matthews should have come in at slightly less than he did. Mm-hmm. And you can compare him to McKinnon's contract, um, who, you know, I think by any stretch, McKinnon is, you know, at worst, a, as good a player as Austin Matthews. He's like, they're clearly of a similar caliber. Um, you know, you can compare to that. And... Do everything you like there. And at the end of the day, Austin Matthews' agent can say, fuck you, pay me. I'm Austin Matthews. There is one of me. Nathan McKinnon is not walking through that door. Yeah. If you want now, him, try and go get him. Yeah. <laughs> now, with Nylander, that argument is, like, less persuasive because it's like, you know, there are more players in Nylander's uh, tier. But there's still not a ton of them. Mm-hmm. They're still not that easy to get. Like, you know, uh, we talked about Sam Reinhardt, and Sam Reinhardt's, uh, I think, a player in Nylander's tier. Yeah, maybe the Leafs could have said, uh, okay, we'll take our chances on si- Sam- signing Sam Reinhardt for slightly less than we can sign William Nylander for. Well, your probability of signing Sam Reinhardt is not one. It's not even close to one. Mm-hmm. Right? It, 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 it's significantly less than that. Um, so you can't guarantee that. You can say, oh, maybe we can try and trade for some you know, disgruntled superstar X. We could have you know, had a time machine and realized, okay, maybe let's go after Timo Meyer, who, by the way, hasn't looked that great this year. Um like, you have to give up assets for that. There's no positive probability that, or there's no uh, guarantee that Timo Meyer wants to sign long-term here either. You know, it's all these things. All this uncertainty helps, you know, the, the person in charge of the scarce resource. And the scarce resource here is incredibly talented hockey players. And that's what William Nienander is. On that note, you know, Nienander's incredible half season... I think it's worth pointing out that this is not really a shooting percentage bender for William mm-hmm. Nylander. Um, really, a large chunk of what's happening is his usual per-minute rates are sustaining, and the Leafs are just playing him more. Yeah. Right? And they're playing him on the penalty kill, and he's added a couple, you know, uh, shorthanded points. They're playing him a lot, 6v5. Remember, when the Leafs acquired Ryan O'Reilly last year, Nylander spent some time on the second power play unit uh, thereafter. That's not happening this year. Nylander is like one of the focal points of the first power play unit, and the first power play unit is playing a lot too, right? So, you know, to that extent, it's not like, oh, he's found like a brand new level. It's like he's sustaining his level across more minutes, which is still important to do and like not a, not a given. Um, so there's reasons to think this is maybe what Nylander can be, right? It's not like he, we're seeing a brand new level from him. We're seeing him sustain the same level he's had across more minutes, which is, which is great. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, despite all that, he's still, at least in my eyes, not a top 10 forward. He's in that class of forwards who is like very clearly an above average first liner, mm-hmm. but is not a truly superlative elite player. And the Leafs are paying him like, you know, a superlative elite player. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's to his credit that we're using him more and he's doing this well. It suggests that he can carry more of the weight, which he will probably have to over the life of the contract. But in uh, negotiation theory, there's a concept called BATNA. And BATNA is best alternative to a negotiated offer. Uh, negotiated agreement, I should say. And so that just means, what do you do if this negotiation falls apart? Like, let's say that Living had come to Lewis Gross and said, I can't go above 11 million. This is insane. I'm walking out of the room now. What does Living do after he walks out of that room? Well, first of all, um, Nylander already has a no-move clause. It kicked in July 1st. So if Nylander doesn't want to be traded this season, and he might well not, uh, then he can veto any trade. Like you, your trade assets may well be zero, and he may not be all that positively disposed to you after you walked away from a negotiation with him. Um, then we talk about, okay, uh, let's say that you still won't do that. You let him walk. You say, I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm going to take 11.5 million of cap space, and I'm going to go shopping. So currently, there are a bunch of somewhat appealing unrestricted free agent forwards. Some of them are going to extend before they get to market, so they won't be available. But to take examples, Steven Stamkos, Jake Gensel, Jonathan Marchessault, Elias Lindholm, Tyler Toffoli, Jake DeBrusque, Matt DeShane. Um, I think that currently Nylander is better than all of those guys. Um, in some cases, clearly, Stamkos is still really good despite his age. But you can say, maybe I will try to make up what I'm losing with him in the market. And I think that there is a chance that that works out. There is also a chance that it blows up in your face and, forgive my crudity, you're left standing with your dick in your hand. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the risk that you're taking. And that risk is a painful one to take when, again, you've got prime Austin Matthews and you are trying to go for it every year. Right, like, it, it's sort of easy to say we'll spend that money better in the aggregate. And it's possibly true. I think it's a really bold way to run a team. And I, I, I think it's a defensible way, but it is definitely high risk. Because if you're the lease and you have, you know, let's say you're able to get one to two of, you know, mid-range targets and, and, and you get, you know, a decent amount of, of, of wins back there, but you have like $6 million in cap space, that you can't really use in a way that you deem effective. Either you spend that cap space and just, you know, get someone in the door, maybe on a short-term deal that is, like, above market and isn't, like, super cost-effective. Or you just leave that cap space empty, which sounds fine in the in the abstract, but, you know, Kathy has, has a phrase, cap space is wins you're not paying for. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, and it's true. Every dollar that you have, that you are not spending, that you are allowed to spend, is a win, a marginal win that you could be trying to get. I remember the now, Ottawa Senators under Eugene Melnick bragging about cost per point when they weren't spending that much. And it was like, yeah, great. You're paying less for the limited wins you are getting. Your team stinks. Yeah. So, you know, in the, in that situation, 
like that's not ideal either and you could there are times where hoarding cap space is like a reasonable thing to do because you want to utilize it for some future purpose right maybe in the trade market or whatever when you're a contending team that becomes a bit harder to do you're not in the business of taking on cap dumps right you're in the business of paying money for good players and if you can't really get those good players you know if trades don't materialize if you know your signings don't come to you as you said it can you know you're left with your dick in your hand yeah absolutely um you know how desirable a free agent destination toronto is is variable they are a good team you will have great facilities by all accounts you get to live in a nice big city if that appeals to you at the same time ryan o'reilly got a taste of that and said no i would rather move and a certain type of player is going to say that doesn't appeal to me and uh also looking out the window as we record right now on the 14th of january I can't blame anyone who would rather live somewhere where the weather isn't like this. So, yeah, pro-con. Ultimately, I think it came down to this. Uh, the Leafs really wanted this. They didn't feel that they could walk away. And once that happened, the negotiation was just going to be whatever William Nylander's camp wants. And I think some people hoped that because Nylander wanted to stay in Toronto, that he would give them a break on some of these terms. He didn't. And I don't hold that against him in a personal capacity, but yeah, he he negotiated hard in his own interest. And that's fine, but that is what it is. Yep. And so we talked about this a ton with the Barner contract, with um, the Matthews contract, and also with the Neander contract. I don't think it's fair to begrudge players or like you know, claim that they are like bad people, or in any in any real sense of the term, for negotiating in their own interest. Mm-hmm. Pro sports is a rough business. These guys are always one play away from their career ending, from their well being being significantly tarnished for the rest of their lives. You know, I think it's totally fair for them to chase the highest amount of money that they can get, or like the best offer that they deem or the offer that they deem is just, like, best monetarily for them. Um, now, at the same time, as fans of a team, the cap does place this unfortunate reality that, like, if you root for a team, you do sort of have to root for your players to get underpaid slightly. Mm-hmm. Or not even just slightly. You just have to root for your players to get underpaid. Yeah. Right? And there's, like, this dissonance that arrives because you want your players to do well because that's good for the team because also you like the players, but also... That somehow hurts the team's future expected, um, you know, wins and future expected results because any dollar that you are paying to those players can't go to new players or better players elsewhere. Yeah. And the least players, their stars, have consistently sort of, I don't, I feel like chase the money is like a strong term and, and connotes negatively, but they have prioritized getting top of comparables deals. Yeah, right. And, and now they haven't up. gone to UFA, I guess, mm. is the most encouraging thing. But they've certainly gotten all they could from the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I think, you know what, I think that it's one of those, uh, I hate to sound equivocal here, but like one of those two things can be true things. I do not in any way begrudge Nylander from saying, this is the big contract of my career. I have worked really hard. I've put up with a million uncles in the GTA area trying to fantasy trade me for a third pair defenseman. I am going to do what's right for me. And that's totally fine. 
I also don't begrudge fans from looking at this and saying, hey, he's making 11.5. He could make 10 and still make more than I'm going to make cumulatively in the course of my life. And I wish he had given us a bit of a break. And so the, the goodwill that I would have given him if he took 10 is less in evidence now that he's taking 11.5. Right. And I think what makes it particularly frustrating for Leafs fans at times is that every other team seems to have players that do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's the Toronto tax, I guess. And I don't mean tax in the literal sense. I mean, just you get more playing here. You're never right. going to be under discussed and you're dealing with a rich organization. And I think, so one thing that's I, I think is interesting to think about um, and does depend a lot on the player is I wonder to what extent foregoing some salary is like a good for your just general quality of life in mm-hmm. Toronto in the sense of you get less people hating you and being annoyed by you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for a lot of players, I think they rightfully don't and shouldn't look at that sort of thing because, you know, I think it's just like a recipe for, for like nihilism and like self-hatred and a bunch of other negative things. <laughs> but for example, Morgan Riley, who is I think the one star relief player who, who took a deal that was probably less than or equal to what he would get on the market. I think he would have gotten like more. sort of, yeah. yeah, is like sort of universally beloved among Leafs fans right now. Because yeah, did you just this week, um, there was a vote to get him into the All-Star game. And my Twitter feed for like three days was just Morgan Riley's name on loop forever. Like people love him for that. Now, again, it's a matter of priorities. And again, the difference of like a million five a year, that's a lot of money. Right. It's easy to say for me, <laughs> but I, I'm not choosing, you know, yeah. no one's offering me 11.5 million. And I'm being like, no, I will take nine. Yeah, that's the thing is... I, I do honestly think if I got in the position where uh, I was choosing between 11, 5, and 10, I would have an easy time choosing 10. But yeah, I'm not in that position, possibly because I'm not that motivated for the extra dollar to begin with. So who can say? Um, okay, so I think we've established in uh, perhaps painful detail, the Leafs didn't win this negotiation, but they got it. They keep the player. I know a lot of people are saying, hey, I don't want to care about all these contract terms. I want to care that the Leafs have kept a player I really like for possibly the rest of his career. And that is very valid. So how do you build around it? And this is not going to be in immense detail, but it's just sort of a back of the napkin sketch at what we're looking at now. So for 2024-25, the Leafs have their core four forwards locked in. So Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Tavares. They also have Matthew Nyes, Kelly Yarncroke, David Kopp, Pontus Holmberg, and Ryan Reeves. <laughs> if you're content with third-line center David Kopp and fourth-line winger Ryan Reeves, that means they need three wingers. If not, they need a third-line center, two left wings, and a fourth-line winger. It's worth noting, I, I don't think Sheldon Keefe is content with 3C David Kopp and fourth-line winger Ryan Reeves. Yeah, like third-line third center David Kopp is something like if you get him a better winger situation and you're optimistic, you're like, maybe we can bring that back. I mean, the Reeves thing, we've belabored enough. It didn't work. Uh, on defense, they have Morgan Riley, Jake McCabe, and Connor Timmins. Timmins is currently being healthied in favor of Simone Benoit. So at best, he seems like a sixth D. 
Uh, in net, the Leafs currently have Joseph Wall and Dennis Hildeby, which I suspect they will not be comfortable with. Um, so to recap, you need a third-line center, two top-nine wingers, two top-four defensemen, another defenseman, and probably a platoon backup 1B goalie, depending on how you feel about Joseph Wall. The Leafs have $17 million to do all that if they're willing to run a 20-man roster, which they might not be. And that's that's factoring in next year's cap increase, correct? Yeah, um, according to Cap Friendly, so it's projected. Um, it's doable. It's not easy. Not easy, though. Yeah. Um, I'd strongly anticipate that they are going to sign Timothy Liljegren, one, because they need him, two, because he's an RFA, and you don't generally lose RFAs that you need. But the flip side is Liljegren and his agent almost certainly know that, and he is arbitration eligible. They may not be able to lock him up for term, as they would probably otherwise prefer to do. Uh, I could also see them citing TJ Brody at a pay cut, but Brody, I think, has been in decline this year. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's been a little rough for him this season. He's at the age where, like, you know, it, it's always hard to tell, right? This is where yeah. you really need pro scouting, and so you actually kind of need the eye test or maybe even more, a lot more detailed stats than we have in the public sphere or that I'm aware mm -hmm. of in the public sphere. Um, yeah. because Brody has come down, but he was genuinely very, very good last year and in years prior. So, like, is it, you know, oh, he's had a small loss in effectiveness? Is it, oh, he is, like, turbo-cooked? Yeah. Um, you know, it, uh, that's hard to tell from, from the outside. I, I mean, I think, actually, yeah, this, this, is, this is where, you know, your, you know, billion-dollar organization hopes to make some use of the infrastructure it's spent on pro scouting and analytics and that sort of thing to make better decisions about players like this yeah and it's a tough call it's a borderline case if they do bring him back it has to be for less money um partly because i think he is in some decline but also because like they can't afford it <laughs> so um one, yeah. one note on uh Logan. this is one of those situations that you know we've talked about dozens of times um he would be a ripe target for an offer sheet if offer sheets existed for mid-level players yeah, I've banged this because, drum a billion times. Like, I think it would actually be beneficial for a lot of teams to take a run at players like Liljegren. But until it happens, we have to assume it's not going to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Because, like, the the draft pick uh, that you have to give up is, like, not that big. Mm -hmm. And the contract that you have to give him is also not that big. But, like, it doesn't take much to force the Leafs into a situation where it's like, okay, we either have to keep this guy at, like, a few hundred thousand more than we would like to. Not necessarily a few hundred thousand more than he is worth. But a few hundred thousand more than we would like to because he's an RFA and we want to squeeze him. Yeah. And, yeah, it's... it's it's. But teams don't really do that, so... Uh, but, it, it, I don't know, always worth pointing it out, I suppose, when it, when, it, when it does happen, when these situations do arise. Yeah. I keep expecting that, like, maybe one year you're going to get a really aggressive GM who's willing to do it. And it did happen in prior years of the league. Um, but, yeah, like, the only Sebastian... Sorry, the only offer sheet recently was Sebastian Ajo. Um, which was a different situation than the, the Canes matched it. Um, so in theory, the Leafs could fill out a forward group sort of like they did this year with like a mid-level 3C and a second line left winger and then another option promotion thrown in. Obviously a big leap from Fraser Minton or Easton Cowan or a promotion for Topi Nimala would be hugely helpful. I don't know that we can count on any of those, despite what people seem to think. Um, Minton projects as a solid bottom sixer, but he did look overmatched in his brief NHL cameo. And I he think he was have... clearly not ready for the NHL. No, uh, and he didn't have a great World Juniors. 
Neither of those is a serious problem. That's fine. Except if you're counting on him to take on a big NHL role at age 20, which is what we would be doing next year. Um, Nick Robertson, by the way, will also be an RFA, but I don't know what's going to happen with that. We're going to talk about him in the trade section. Um, just as a note, uh, summer 2023 was a rare opportunity in which even prized UFAs like Tyler Bertuzzi were willing to take a one year because they wanted to re-enter free agency after a cap spike. Uh, I expect more term is going to be required this year. And if you're listening, Brad, that means that the next time you sign John Klingberg, he's probably going to command term and you can't afford to be stupid this time. Okay. Uh, after 24-25, both Mitch Marner and John Tavares need new deals. If the Leafs are still committed to this core, God help us, they can hopefully get a hometown discount on Tavares. But as a warning, I think people are getting pretty optimistic as to how much of a discount that would be. Yeah, um, I, I don't th- I don't think he's going to take a $2 million uh, deal. Yeah, obviously he's not going to make $11 million again. But like right now... He's a good second-line center. Last summer, I just watched JT Comfer, who is, like, dubiously close to that, get 5 by 5 Like, I do not think that Tavares is going to take, like, a massive undervalue pay cut. Maybe a slight one. Um, I think again, his contract will be closer to, like, an 8 than a, than a 5. That seems... Very possible. You know, like, we'll see how it goes, but obviously that's... Also, yeah. like, you know, betting on Toronto contracts to be more than you expect is, like, not the worst retirement plan at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, like, Morgan Riley came in somewhat under what he could have gotten. And even then, if you go back to the episode about that, we were like, this is still a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. No, we, we, we weren't very high. I should say, me in particular, I was not very high in the Morgan Riley contract. I think it's been fine since yeah. uh, he had a rough regular season last year but he, he was very good in the playoffs and has been good this regular season yeah right now i'm certainly fine with it so I, that's kind of all you can expect um if miss marner sticks around guess what he's going to go for a raise too and he's going to go into that negotiation with probably the same mindset that nylander did and he, i don't think he's going to take less than nylander no and like Nylander, he has a no-move clause. So if he doesn't want to get traded, he can't get traded. Um, I, I I think people need to brace themselves for him to come closer to Matthews' AAV than Nylander's AAV. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I, to be clear, I don't think that'll be a good contract. No, but, neither do I. But like, if you're his agent, you come in and say, hey, Marner's a better player than Nylander. He was a Selkie contender last year. He's a legitimate all-around winger. He's uh, gotten more points most years of their career compared to Nylander. Uh, Pay me. And I wouldn't be surprised if that ends in a deal that's $12.5 million. Maybe. I... Uh, (laughs) That is my comment on that. That's painful. And he's a great player, but, like, unfortunately, this is the world you live in with a sour cap. Uh, okay. So that is the situation. I guess the bottom line I would draw under this is it's not like Nylander at this money or even Marner at that money in the future prevents you from icing a contending team. What it does is it cuts your margin for error. You can't be wrong 
um, to any great extent when you sign those top four defensemen, when you sign that second line left wing, when you sign that third line center. And to be clear, that means it's not enough to be good on some and bad on others, which is what Trilliving has done, I would say. I think he's had some good and some bad. It's, it is what it is. But in a really unforgiving situation, that's not good enough. And it's also a situation where you can be, you can have a bad signing for the right reasons and a bad signing for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think Trilliving has actually like kind of done a bit of both, right? I think Klingberg and Reeves were just like bad deals on the face of them. They were bad. Everyone who, you know, everyone who even not even watched Klingberg last year, just like looked at how bad the Ducks were and how big a role he was playing and has seen any part of Reeves career was like, these don't seem like they're going to help the team. Mm-hmm. And they haven't. Um, Tyler Bertuzzi, I think, has not been worth five and a half million. I think, you know, there's been some issues there. But I, I think that was like, you know, it, it hasn't been a phenomenal deal, but for a reasonable, but there was a reasonable process behind it. I think that was like a totally fine deal. So this, there's some level of like confirmation to what my prior was here. I'm like, oh, I thought, you know, these two deals were bad at the time and they were proven to be bad. And I thought this deal was good at the time and has proven to be like not that great. Therefore, that latter deal is like actually fine. But I think this is also just like generally true when you talk about the the hockey following population, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like my test that's being applied here. I think most people thought Reeves and Klingberg are like kind of iffy signings, and Bertuzzi was wow, that was that that's a great coup, good job. So when you spend more than like other teams are on your top players, not only does it force you to entirely omit the la- the the former, like you know we we signed these guys and it was just dumb. Mm-hmm. But it forces you to omit the latter, which is we signed this guy and this actually made sense. It just didn't work. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot less control over that. Yeah. And unfortunately, yeah, there's, it's not very forgiving. And, you know, when I, I mentioned something to this effect on Twitter where I said, like, look, if you're doing this, you can't make mistakes like that. And a lot of people got very mad at me and say, OK, maybe Klingberg and Reeves weren't great. But what about Simone Benoit and like other deals that he's made that are good? I'm saying, yeah, Simone Benoit has been great value as a depth defenseman. That's a good signing. Give him credit for that. That's fine. It's not good enough. And that's not me saying that. That's me looking at the league and saying, unfortunately, if you want to win a cup, it's not enough just to be some good and some bad. You have to be right a lot of the time. Um, it's a tough also, business. It's not, just you, <laughs> it's not just you saying that. It's like the standings. Yeah. Like, you know, we all want to believe in the Toronto Maple Leafs as a contender. And we, you know, we, we talk ourselves into them. Right now, the Leafs, by points, are in 11th. And by points percentage, they're in 10th. Yeah. So, like, again, like, that's not bad. There are a lot of teams who would envy the position they're in. But if you're actually the 11th best team, what does that amount to on average? A first-round exit. Mm-hmm. And so, look, you can win the cup as the 11th best team in the league. Sure. But probably right. you won't. Probably you won't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, in light of that, we still have a season that is ongoing right now. We've talked a lot about the future, but the Leafs are in the present. And the second part of this episode is going to be about trade candidates. Um, we're going to focus on defensemen this episode. I think defense is the greater need. Probably. Uh, you yeah, can argue like, that they need forwards too. <laughs> watching the game against Colorado yesterday, it's just like, man, the Leafs have so few guys on the back end who can make a play with the puck. 
I mean, they, by so few, they have one. They have Riley. Mm-hmm. And other guys, McCabe is a useful defenseman. Brody, I, despite his decline, is still a useful defenseman. But And Louis Green's a useful defenseman as well. But they are just, like, none of them are above average at making a play under pressure with the puck, I feel. Mm. And that's difficult. Yeah. So let's look at what's out there. We're going to do a bit of a survey. We're going to start with what assets do the Leafs have to trade with. I'm not focusing so much on players who are actually on the roster right now. Um, the Leafs, as a team that's trying to buy, would rather not subtract a ton from their roster. Maybe also, in some, yeah. Their roster is bifurcated enough that's like, what What are you going to trade, David Kampf? Is that going to help you? Make the, <laughs> is that, <laughs> what's David Kampf returning you, you know? Yeah. And like, you know, people can say, oh, I want TJ Brody off this team. I'm like, I think the situations where that's still beneficial to do at the trade deadline are pretty limited. Like, and again, he's in decline, but it's like, if you're trying to get better at defense, he's still one of the better defensemen that you have. By all means, get someone who's going to push him down. And maybe you do have to deal him out to balance the cap. But like, you would prefer to keep him if you could for the rest of the season. So what do the Leafs have to trade with? Uh, Well, they're 2024 first. This is the most obvious trade chip. But the Leafs don't have a first in 2025 because they gave it up for Jake McCabe. It's top 10 protected. Let's hope it never comes to that. Uh, And the farm is thin. I think a lot of people... uh, Well, really, this is not just unique to the Leafs. Every fan base kind of believes that it has an above average prospect pool. It's just one of those things. Oh, the Leafs that's don't. not true. The, the, the Habs are really measured about their prospect pool. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Habs always are convinced that they have a top one prospect pool. But By the way, did you hear that Uri Slavkovsky finally learned which way of the stick is used to, to shoot? I think he's going to be a star. Oh my god. So he's not just like poking around with the butt end on the ice anymore. Oh, no, man, no. That's a big he, step figured it, he figured out like the, the fat bit with the, the blade, that they call it. That's what you use to shoot. Oh, wow. And he's got there before 20. Well, yeah. Oh, call the engraver. So, <laughs> the Leafs have that first round pick uh, if they are willing to deal it. It's not painless, but it's the most obvious easy asset. They have... And yeah. firsts are also... Sorry, I keep interrupting, but... Um, it's okay. Firsts are also kind of universally desirable among teams. Like, every, yeah. everyone likes an extra first round draft pick, right? Yeah, it's currency, and that's how they work. Um, unfortunately, the Leafs have no second rounders in any of the next three seasons. So... That's the thing is in a lot of these uh, fictional trade scenarios, I sort of find myself being like, okay, maybe we negotiate them off the first so that we can keep it for this draft and then we can keep bringing some stuff in. But you don't have a second to go down to. <laughs> so it's a little messy. Uh, they have the Islanders third rounder this year, but not their own. And then they have seven picks from the fourth round on. So there's like a lot of sort of leftover stuff. Um, maybe you cobble something together with that. Maybe you use that to get some salary retention at the right moment. Um, and then we look at the prospects and I'm really only counting four players as having significant value. Everyone else is kind of fringe, except maybe Dennis Hildeby, who I don't think is they're shopping. Who's kind of iffy. So Fraser Minton. Minton's stock may be a little higher in Toronto right now than is warranted. Cause as we mentioned, he made the team briefly at a camp and then he was named captain of Canada's world juniors team. Both he and the team kind of disappointed there, but it is what it is. Uh, He's a hard worker, and he should be an NHL bottom six center, I expect. 
but he doesn't have high-end offensive upside from most of the people I've read from. I, I like yeah, and this is Corey I've, I've seen the opinion. same. Yeah. Um, that's still fine. Like, if the Leafs get a cheap third-line center for a few years, that's terrific for them. That means that they don't have to pay, I don't know, David Kampf to do it. But it also means that there is probably a ceiling on his value. Now, we talked about picks being currency and sort of universally valued in a similar-ish way. You know, it varies depending on your team position, but everyone understands them. Prospects are in the eye of the beholder. So it's possible there's someone who looks at Fraser Minton and sees more. And if so, maybe that's something you look into. I know that this is painful uh, to talk about for a lot of players because, like, we don't have a lot of prospects. I think everything has got to be on the table. Um, yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Um, on Minton, I think he might be a player who is more valuable to the Leafs than to other teams. I mean, there's always an endowment bias, but also I feel like teams that are selling are sort of trying to chase the elite talent dragon. And, like... Mm. Maybe this yeah. is my own bias here, and maybe teams don't actually behave this way, but if I'm in that situation, I'm trying to chase assets. Unless I already have like a bunch of like star pieces on the team. I'm trying to chase assets that I think have some star probability. Mm-hmm. I think Minton has almost zero star probability. And yeah. that's fine. You could like if Minton becomes Marcus Kruger, like that's a phenomenal pick, and he'd be incredible like the least would love having, you know, prime Marcus Kruger on their team. Yeah. Right? So I, I but if, if if you're if you're I don't know Anaheim if you're you know random ass team it, it, does Minton move the tape move the needle for you at all I wouldn't think so I think like Anaheim despite having a lot of young talent as is would, would still wants to chase more like elite young talent and not like eh this guy can probably be a third line guy yeah and so that's something to think about now one of the things in the Leafs' favor is that teams who are buying often don't have those gold-plated prospects because they tend to be picking later and they also tend to trade a lot of their draft picks. But yeah, it, it it's a rational way to evaluate the asset. Um, Easton Cowan, who was a bit of a controversial pick at the time, is having a great year for the London mm-hmm. Knights. Um, back when we did the top 25 under 25, by the way, Pension Plan Puppet still does it. I just don't participate in it anymore. But back when I did it, um, I always said, I want to see what he does as a pro. So that's my attitude with Cowan, but certainly he's doing what he's got to do as a junior. Um, Toby Nimala is a smart and agile puppeting defender who is still adjusting at the AHL level uh, at age 21. I don't think that that's a problem, but again, I don't know that he's tipping the scales. And finally, Nick Robertson, left winger, age 22. Um, Robertson never seems too far from putting it together at the NHL level, and yet he's a little too small, a little too slow on his release, and a little too aggressive in some of his decision-making. And I still kind of like him. I still think that he could be useful on the team, but he's getting scratched a lot in favor of Pontus Holmberg. That's not a great sign. And so no. it may be time for a divorce. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I, I'd i be fine. I, I'm okay with just keeping him for now. Like, I, I, yeah. I think he... I think when he's played, he's been all right this year. His his scoring rates are actually like quite good. They're like similar to yeah. Cole Caulfield's, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but he clearly doesn't have the trust of the coaching staff. That entire third line doesn't, in some ways. You know, with the exception of Callie Yarncroke, who's our utility knife. Yeah. So, but you know, he's young enough that I think you ride it out 
at least a little bit. Um, the Leafs are going to need cheap contributors in the future, mm-hmm. and there's there's at least still some upside there. Like, I, I, unless some other team really values him, and I don't see why they would. Because if this same prospect existed on another team, I would be like, okay, whatever. I don't care about that guy. Yeah. Um, I, I mean... You know, I, I would keep him. Yeah. In. And I, I broadly agree with you. He's an RFA, obviously, at the end of this year. Doesn't appear to have arb rights. So, like, yeah, you can probably bring him back for a very moderate contract. Um, assuming he hasn't totally lost patience and decided to go play in Europe. You know, if I'm another team, I might say, hey, this guy is blocked. He's not getting an opportunity from a coach who doesn't like him. And he's at a near 40-point pace when he does play. Um, but yeah, that's what you have to trade with. It's not like a, a banquet here. And so, you know, it's a question of how you use these assets intelligently. But it's not like you have a wild stockpile to go shopping with. Um Nevertheless, we have looked at six defensemen because we love you, our listeners, and we want you to hear more about the trade market. So without further ado, let's get to the biggest name. Yep. Uh, Chris Tanev. Mm-hmm. So he's an expiring UFA. He has a $4.5 million AAV. Presumably Calgary would be willing to retain to some extent, or, you know, the Leafs can pay for retention from another team if that's necessary. Um He's 34 now. He just turned 34, so he's 34 the rest of this season. Um, there's been a lot of buzz about Chris Tanev, both for good reasons and for, I think, sometimes silly reasons. This mm-hmm. One of the silly reasons is um, he's from Toronto. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the good reasons are that Brad Living acquired him once, I believe. Uh, it, you know, he was obviously familiar with his game in Calgary. And Chris Tanev is... And has been an elite defensive defenseman. Mm-hmm. He's also been like the rare, you know, quote unquote defensive defenseman who everyone admits, yeah, this guy's nothing really to shake a stick at or nothing really, nothing really to write home about offensively, who nonetheless provides really strong value to his team or has over the course of his career because of just how good his defense is. He's mm-hmm. a lot like uh, Nick Jalmerson, right. uh, if you remember from the Chicago dynasty. Um, his offensive impact has always been kind of mid to bad, but he's more than made up for it, basically by completely stifling opposing team offense. Uh, and he's had kind of an interesting career trajectory because his last few years in Vancouver, on a pretty middling team, he didn't look great. And he was getting to the point and the age where it's like, okay, he could be declining. He's, you know, a tough, hard-nosed defenseman, blocks a lot of shots, plays tough, you know, took a lot of punishment. Oh, maybe he's declining. And I think we both thought, yeah, he's probably declining. Then he goes mm-hmm. to Calgary and sure didn't look like decline from there. You know, mm-hmm. his numbers in Calgary have been really, really, really good. Um, with the slight exception of this season, where he's about average. Um, so again, similar to what we said about Brody, this is where, you know, as a team, you have to be much more careful than we are. You have to have a bunch of guys who watch Calgary and track Calgary and see, okay, is you know, Tanev actually a lot worse this season, or is it just like sort of a bit of random variation, maybe a bit of new coaching change and uh, new system causing adjustments, maybe it doesn't fit him as well, yada, yada, yada. Because otherwise, everything I said above could be said for TJ Brody. <laughs> and a lot of these fans think TJ Brody is, as we said, completely washed. But just last year, TJ Brody was one of the best defensive defensemen in the league. The same is true of Chris Tanev, and the Leafs could absolutely use those skills because... You know, we just always need more defensemen who can actually play against 
good players and hold their own and stifle them. And Tanov has absolutely done that over the course of his career. Yeah. Um, the tricky thing with Tanev is, okay, what are you comfortable giving up for a rental? Mm-hmm. And do you think you can extend him? And there has been some rumor that the Leafs believe that if they got Tanev, they could extend him. And that in itself is not a painless prospect, because as we mentioned, he's 34. He plays like the devil, and God bless him for that. But he's gotten injured a lot. Like, I I hate to keep harping on this. Sometimes age comes very fast. Sometimes you are good, and then six months later, you are significantly worse. And then six months after that, you are almost unrecognizable. It's brutal. Um... That seems like a possibility with Chris Tanev to me. And that doesn't mean that I don't find him really interesting. Because as we mentioned, he's been good. But it's not without risk, I guess is what I would say. Mm-hmm. Other thing to note, um, to, as I said, Tanev's nothing to write home about offensively. But he does make simple plays relatively well. I think he, he, he tracks well in shot assists by uh, Corey Snyder's tracking, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, really cool. He tracks very poorly, which is uh, in shot contributions, like, sorry, shots that he takes. And that is a positive to me. <laughs> um, we don't need defenders who shoot a lot, right? That's going to um, come up later in this segment. Yes. Uh, at least th- that's that's our bias. I think it's like a long-standing bias we have. Like, defenders who shoot a lot, unless they shoot really, really well, you know, or they add, you know, so much with the threat of their shot, like a Kale McCarr type, that it just juices the offense overall. You know, I, I'd rather have a guy who looks to defer to his teammates. Another interesting thing is how will Tanev, and how do defensemen generally, respond to being put in the Toronto offensive uh, zone blender of like, hey, you're you're kind of expected to read and react. And like, you can be a little staid and react, and, and sorry, conservative, the way like TJ Brody is, for example. Brody's not making these hugely aggressive uh, pinches or rushes or you're um, really getting himself too far away from his, his home base. Um, he mostly defers to Riley for that, but there is some degree of, you know, improvisation and spontaneity in the Leafs offensive system that is not always true of other teams. Carolina is the team that I always think about on the other end of that spectrum where they're very structured and very rigid mm-hmm. um, and it works for them, but it's just a different style. So I, I don't know exactly how Tanev would fit in that system, but certainly his in-zone defensive play is and has been over the course of the career, absolutely phenomenal. And that would be a big benefit to the Leafs if you believe he is still good enough to execute there. Right. And also um, hold up to the rigors of a hopefully long playoff run. Yes. I think if you get Chris Tanev, you are anticipating playing him beside Morgan Riley. And then you bump TJ Brody down the lineup, hopefully buff up your third pair, and go from there. Just as an aside... um, I know everyone's fallen in love with Simone Benoit. I don't blame them. He's a very likable player. He's physical. He's held the fort when we were pretty thin. These acquisitions that we're talking about are probably going to bump him off the roster for when, when healthy. That's just how it is. Um, doesn't mean you don't love him as a seventh guy. But that's something that you probably want to account for. Anyway, yeah, um, I don't hate the idea of... Uh, Chris Tanev in principle, obviously it's fraught with some risk. I do want to note, and this sort of applies generally, it seems like it's a bit of a buyer's market. Nikita Zadorov went for a third and a fifth uh, to the Vancouver Canucks. He went early. 
But that was less than I thought he was going to cost. And so if you want to be optimistic, you might hope that prices are going to be more modest this year. Yeah. Um, um, so there's a couple others that I looked into, and I am, just to preface this, <laughs> a lot less excited about these guys. Um, Justin Schultz has uh, as another uh, would be another rental, $3 million expiring with Seattle. Just not impressed at all by him. Uh, I, the way I see it, the Leafs need guys who can do one of two things. I did both of these. But they need to either um, stifle great offensive players defensively or be able to make plays with the puck under pressure. And I don't think Schultz can really do either of these well. He's just consistently been a third-pair guy. Look, maybe there's more there. I'm not going to say I'm the world's foremost expert on Justin Schultz. Um, a reportedly smart team in Seattle has seemed to value him. But I just don't see the enormous value add over one of the other you know, third-pairing guys that we already have. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not like he's trusted to face stars much or anything like that. I don't think he's really going to bolster the top end. And I think that's what the Leafs need, is someone to bolster the top end. Um, along those same lines, Ilya Libushkin, uh, $2.75 million expiring deal with uh, Anaheim. You might remember him. He was on the Leafs, I think, a couple seasons ago. For the cap hit, I just don't get it. And I guess the cap hit doesn't matter that much. It's a rental. There can be You can do a lot of stuff with retention, whatever. You just fit it in. <sighs> Look, I don't care that Labushkin was pretty good or better than expected with Riley three years ago. I just don't. That was three years ago. A lot has changed since then. He hasn't been that good since. He was with Riley in that... Uh, playoff run run so to speak it was a first round exit like most of the leafs <laughs> exits have been the playoff and, brief walk yeah exactly um and he did better than expected with riley but that was a fake top four role mm-hmm. right he was still used as the fourth or fifth most used defenseman at even strength it's just like he started with riley and then they would find shifts for riley to play with other players mm-hmm. right um, so overall, like his role wasn't that taxing. He clearly didn't fully trust him. I don't think anything he's done in the intervening two years has said like this guy is anything more than a competent third pairing guy. And look, competent third pairing guys can play on the on, on top pairs, on fake top pairs, with with some degree of success. We saw that with Luke Shen last year with uh with Vancouver, where he played on the fake top pair with uh, Quinn Hughes, where mm. you know. It's like you have your sixth defenseman and your first defenseman by minutes playing together, and they take a lot of regular shifts together, but also you find lots of situations to use your actual top defenseman outside of that. Mm-hmm. right? So it, it's not a real top four role. Um, it's not a role where you're consistently facing elite competition. I, I'm just not sure what Labushkin does to justify you know, trading assets to get him again. Like I think we, we got him the first time as as depth insurance and he paid out but in terms of getting him to fix a higher level issue with the team i don't think he's the guy my honest opinion is this if the leafs try to do something meaningful and fail they will get Ilya labushkin that will be a sign that they tried to do something that made a difference and they couldn't pull it off because yeah i like it's fine generously appraised I don't think it's meaningful. Lubushkin's isolates are like terrible, by the way. I think oh. they're terrible in, in the sense of like, he, he destroys offense when he's on the ice because he just never tries to do anything with the puck, ever. Yeah. He, he like, he, he's one of those safe to a fault defensemen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I expect he'd be better than that in Toronto. But, yeah. 
Okay. So I'm going to take the next three. Uh, I think these might be in like ascending order of degree to which they are exciting. So bear with me a little bit here. We'll try and peek strong. Jan Ruda. Uh, he's a right defenseman. He's 33. He's got one year after this one at 2.75 million with San Jose. Now, we recently played the San Jose Sharks, and they're dead inside. They are a corpse masquerading as a hockey team. Spiritually, they have been destroyed by much failure. You may they find it... the Habs, though. And you know what? God bless them for that. But it was but... a moral victory for the Habs because Uri Stavkosi figured out that the skates are supposed to be tied when you wear them. They're not, the laces don't just dangle. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Nominate him for the Calder. Um... So yeah, Jan Ruda is playing for the San Jose Sharks, and that's a situation that should evoke our collective pity. Uh, it's very sad. But Jan Ruda has been a pretty decent right defender for most of his career. He's big, he's steady, he's conservative. He did this well uh, with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, you mentioned kind of a fake top pairing role uh, previously. Ruda has kind of done that where he's a guy who's nominally in the top four but is not getting those extra shifts. So the team ends up playing, obviously, Hedman, McDonough, Sergachev, the like, ahead of him. Yeah, so he he was one of the, like, 45 guys the Lightning have at some point in their dynasty paired with Victor Hedman. Where you're like, that guy? And then that result, <laughs> the, the, that pairing gets, like, decent results. Yeah. I, I'm beginning to think that Victor Hedman was the key. You know what? There's a lot of evidence that it may be Victor Hedman. And that he might be a good player. Uh, so, yes, cautions abound. Um, that said, he's a decent penalty-killing defender. His isolates are pretty good. Um, again, he's now more removed from those Tampa days, so they're a little bit less just the Victor Hedman show. He was with Pittsburgh last year in a kind of a tough season. He's with San Jose this year in a really tough season. But he's kind of holding together as best he can. Isolates are also a little bit tough on a team like San Jose because it's like, you know, you, in a sense, you're, you know, th these things attempt to adjust for the quality of teammate and quality of competition and that sort of thing. It's pretty hard to adjust for like, when I am off the ice, the entire team is not NHLers. Yeah, they're very bad. Like, I actually was taken aback by how bad they were because it's that special kind of depth that you get to when both your players are bad and they are emotionally sort of wiped out. Like they genuinely didn't think that they had much chance at coming back from a one, nothing deficit. They appeared to try and trap down one, nothing at one point, which is kind of sad. Um, so yeah, you can certainly take a lot away from that. Yeah. I I'm overstating exactly how bad the shark, like they have, you know, like Mario Ferraro is an NHL defenseman, for example. And like, you know, Ruda <laughs> doesn't play with him. I love, <laughs> I love how like that's the best we can say for them it's just sort of like there is an nhl defenseman also on this team besides him um yeah but if you believe in that idea of pairing a conservative-minded partner with morgan riley i don't think this is the craziest thing in the world especially if you can get the sharks to retain on him and then you have him as sort of a cheapy one plus one fourth ish fifth -ish defenseman mm -hmm. um i I like Ruda more than I like either of um, Schultz or Lebuskin. Yeah. I, I'm not saying it's risk-free, especially given his age. And no one should mistake him for a world beater. But 
But if you have to do like a tinkering around the edges thing, you might squeeze him in. And if you can get him retained, and there's a caveat there, but if you can get him retained, um, you might benefit from him being pretty cheap next year in a year where you really got to save some cap. Um, now, the Sharks have already retained on two contracts, Brent Burns and Eric Carlson. And they don't get relief from that until the summer of 2025. So they might not be willing to use their last retention slot on this. But if you can convince them to do it and you get his cap hit down to like 1.4, I think this could be like a sneaky, decent move. And I don't think it would break the bank. Especially if you think I want to save some assets so that I can make a trade um, to maybe buff up the third line. Okay. Matt Dumba. He's a right defenseman. He's 29. He's expiring at 3.9 with Arizona. The Coyotes are having a respectable season so far, and they might not want to sell when they have an outside shot of the playoff appearance. Obviously, playoff appearances are not common. The Arizona Coyotes organization. They have to kind of make a run at them when they get them, even though I think they're probably going to miss in the end. They're hanging around. Um, Dumba's offense has been declining since he put up 14 goals and 50 points in 17-18. And now he has a whopping five points this year. He's not being used as a power play option at all anymore. Not just on the first power play unit, where he's gotten beat by Sean Dursey, but on the second power play unit too, where they're playing Yuso Valimaki over him. An optimist might say that his totals will look better if he gets more opportunity, but it's like, yeah, at most he's going to be on your second power play unit. Um, that said... The Yotes are still using him to anchor their shutdown pairing. He's their second most played defender at even strength behind Jersey. Uh, he's underwater numbers wise, which is not a huge shock because Arizona's not very good. But you could sort of talk yourself into it saying like, this is a guy who's playing against top lines and his most common partner is Travis Dermott. And so if he's doing that and not totally dying, even though he is losing those minutes, um... Maybe there's something still there. The, the important thing to take away is that Travis Dermott's actually a top four defenseman. It, it happened, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Mission accomplished banner hanging in the background. Um, I will say this. Dumba is still very physical. He still throws a ton of hits. If you think that that's something that the Leafs need, Dumba's going to flatten some guys for you. And he did at one point have a big shot. Um, again, if that's something you think the Leafs need, I'm less keen on it, but I know a lot of people love it. Um, I would lean towards more putting him with Jake McCabe if it came to this than Riley. It's a bit of an awkward fit. Uh, I'll be honest. Dumba has always been hit and miss to evaluate defensively because he spent most of his career with the Minnesota Wild, who are generally good. He was iffier. I'm not saying there's nothing there. Um... It's just a matter of, do you want to pay whatever this is going to cost as a rental? And he's a tough player to, to price because at one point he would have commanded quite a bit. And now that era is probably fading, but someone might bid based on who they think he could be again. Yeah. And also I think the Leafs would definitely need retention here, right? At 3.9, like that feels like a lot. Now it's always messy in season. Um, also like what else is Arizona doing? True. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, one thing worth noting, the Leafs, because they use LTIR space, basically never get to bank cap space. So they, yeah. they don't get the benefit of, you know, oh, you know, we only need like five or 500,000 of cap space to fit this guy who's actually like 2 million or whatever. 
Yeah. Um, like it would take some doing. Um, and it's the kind of thing for which we hope that uh, Brennan Pridham is uh, getting paid a good salary. Um, now that said, the Leafs do have, as I mentioned in the top of the segment, a bunch of fifths. So if they need to put another one on the pile to kind of grease the wheels of retention, they can do that. We can give them Connor Timmons back. Oh, no, he, he was Colorado, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, he was Colorado. I, for, I, for, I forget. He was Colorado. I think he may have appeared uh, for the Arizona Coyotes at one point during his itinerant uh, NHL existence. Yeah, Colorado, then Arizona. Okay. So there you go. Um, anyway, it's interesting. Uh but let's get to a bigger name to finish off this segment. Jakob Chikrun. His oh, name, okay. Baby. Oh, baby. Okay, think, so... Yeah. Sorry, I'm interrupting again, yeah. but the one thing I want to point out here is... And this is the most important part, the reason why Jakob Chikrun's on here. It's because the Senators are bad. <laughs> They're a bad team. It's funny that it's come to this for them, that they've been this bad. And look, for all the complaining we did for the past like hour and a half about how our stars take too much money and whatnot at least our stars are good <laughs> the only thing worse is overpaying a guy who's bad um pointed glance at josh norris anyway uh jacob chikrin okay okay sorry before we get started on this i know that i have a track record on this podcast of mispronouncing player names my understanding has always been that it's pronounced jacob Chikrin instead of being Jacob Chikrin even though he's American his dad is named Jeff which is like the whitest name imaginable also condolences because Jeff Chikrin was killed by Paul Romana uh, <laughs> during that broadcast three years ago <laughs> that that might be one of my favorite moments of all time on an NHL broadcast because it went on for a long time and then like in the third period he came back and was like sorry he's alive um anyway I'm pronouncing it Jacob uh, based on it being a K, I apologize to Mr. Chikrin if I am mangling yet another name. I feel like I've heard, I feel like it actually is Jacob Chikrin, but. <laughs> the, okay, the, the thing someone is... said, okay, but I've heard people say this, and this is why I'm uncertain now. Because yeah. I'm trying here, guys. I'm trying to improve. Anyway, I'm just going to call him Chikrin for the rest of this segment. We're not talking about his first name again. Fuck it. Okay. <laughs> Chikrin can play either left or right. He's a left shot. He's 25 years old, which means that he's definitely the youngest of the players we're talking about in this segment. Um, he is a one plus one at 4.6 million with the Ottawa Senators. This is a bigger fish. Um, the Sens, as is their habit, have fallen woefully short of expectations, and they have a new GM in Steve Steos. He's reportedly willing to consider some bigger trades. Uh... The new GM thing is relevant. One, he recognizes that his team needs to do some things differently if they're going to ever not suck. But two, he's not attached to these players in the way that Pierre Dorian might have been. Like, Pierre Dorian made, with great fanfare, a trade to acquire Chikrin. And so Dorian might have been more committed to keep him on that basis. Deos does not have that same attachment. As per Frank Saravalli, teams have acquired on Chikrin, and they haven't been told no. If he's not going to resign in Ottawa, now would be the best time for the Sens to deal him. You get one plus one prices. That's going to be pretty good value. So Chikrin has been well thought of since his draft year. He's 6'2". He's a great skater with a cannon of a shot. That's an appealing combination to a lot of teams. 
Uh, he's an all-situations defender who is currently the second most used defender on the Sands at EV, behind uh, Thomas Chabot. With their current line blending, he's on the effective third pair, but that's just another reminder that crazy stuff can happen in nominal pairings, and you can still end up used quite a lot. Uh, he can play both the penalty kill and the power play, although Ottawa hasn't been using him to kill penalties this year. He's probably the best of the defenders that we've talked about. It's him or Tanev, but at this point, I think it's him. He is a legit shooting defender. So we're going to talk about this, but like he has seven goals this year already, and his career high in goals is 18 in 2021, and he did that in only 56 games. Um, if you think the Leafs need a big shot from the point, Chikrin is your guy. Like, he's really good at that. Um, which is a mixed blessing, but we'll get to that. Um, he does have a rough injury history. His career high in games played is 68, which he got as a rookie in 1617. Now, he did play all 56 in the shortened season in 2021. But still, he's missed a lot of time over his career with various ailments. At his young age, obviously, he's still effective, but it's something that's in the back of your mind, I think. Um, isolates for him depend who you ask. On hockey viz, he actually shows as being below average at driving play both offensively and defensively with a slight shooting lift. Evolving hockey likes him a little better. Um, scouts have said his defense is sometimes iffy. I would not consider him a defensive defender per se. Like he's more offensively focused, I think. So let's talk about shooting defensemen. Uh, Arvin has already alluded to this. We have something of a bias against them because shooting defensemen have a way of taking shots away from forwards. Okay. Even a really good def shooting defenseman, which Chikrin is, he's good at it, is not as good as an average shooting forward. Um, to use an example from a good shooting forward, uh, Chikrin has the fifth most shots on the team this year for the Sens, including forwards and defensemen. He has markedly more than Vladimir Tarasenko. That's probably not what you want. Even granted, Tarasenko plays fewer minutes. But it's because, like... Sorry, I'm just going to say, Chikrin shoots 8% on his shots on goal. That's really good for a defenseman. Tarasenko shoots 13%. Even if, and that's like off his peak when he was like a phenomenal sniper. Yeah, and it's not, like, obviously that, that it's not exactly apples to apples because yeah, some of the shots not. that Chikrin gets are shots that like are not available to Tarasenko, right? Like it, mm -hmm. it's valuable. You know, you could generate a lot of point shots in the nhl and if you can make all of those point shots a little bit more effective that has real value mm -hmm. so the offensive defensemen and shooting talent defensemen do have value and chikrin is one of those players i believe he is a net positive offensively because of his shooting talent but i guess there's a couple things that go along with that one you, you do have to consider some level of cannibalization and i think you know play driving isolates attempt to do this because you know taking hockey visit face value and you know, uh, there's quibbles with, with hockey viz, and it, as you said, it disagrees sometimes with evolving hockey or whatever. But taking it at face value, it says, well, he doesn't create more shots or better shots for his team, but, like, they go in more when he's on the ice, both because of his passing and his shooting. And that nets out to, okay, yeah, he's probably helpful offensively. Mm -hmm. um, the other caveat that comes with shooting talent defensemen is that Similar to what we said about William Nylander in points, shooting talent is, like, one of the most obvious and important things in hockey, so it tends to get paid adequately. Right. It's, like, rare for a shooting talent defenseman to be really underpaid. 
I guess like probably the, the most prominent example of one is Kale McCarr. Um, but mm. he he is not so much a shooting talent defenseman as he is a everything talent defenseman. Mm-hmm. Right, like he's just phenomenal at everything. But yeah, like I I think that's like a worthy consideration. I think Chikrin is good. Um, you know, we followed him a little bit from afar in Arizona because he was perennially, you know, like, okay, when are they going to trade Chikrin? When are they going to trade Chikrin? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's clearly a good player. Um, yeah. Do, now, does when you factor in the cost it would take to get him, the injury risk, the cost of his next deal, I think it might make a little bit less sense for the Leafs than it does for other teams, especially because I think Ottawa is like extremely motivated to not sell a player like Chikrin to the Leafs. Mm-hmm. And I think there will be no shortage of other teams that are interested and willing to pay for Chikrin because he is a good player and he is young. That's the thing, is if you get equivalent offers from Toronto and from literally any other team, if you're the Sens, you take the offer from literally any other team. So the Leafs are probably going to pay at least a slight premium if they get into this market. Um, again, the things about Chikrun, you know, the goal totals, the fact that he's decently big, he's a good skater, good draft pedigree, um, and he is a one plus one. I see the price for him being pretty high. I was talking to a friend of the podcast, uh, totally offside about this on Twitter. And he said like, look, if Chikrin is legitimately available, put all the chips in the ta- on the center of the table. Like he's saying, you know, put the pick in there if that's what it takes, you know, or Minton or Cowan or whoever else. And I don't think that's crazy. You know, mm-hmm. you, you've looked at like kind of an underwhelming set of options that we've just gone through here. Chikrin is a better threat to be a major difference maker. And he actually impacts the top of the lineup. You know, Yeah. (laughs) Justin Schultz isn't fixing everything with the Leafs. Yeah, like I I gave like a qualified endorsement of Jan Ruda. That's like a stopgap option. That's something that you do because you're trying to make a a mid-level play at best. Chikrin is a real guy. Um, Warts and all. And as we covered, you know, the Leafs are like 11th in points percentage. Maybe you could say, oh, that's a little worse than they actually are for reasons X, Y, Z. But I think... You know, through the first half of the season, it's been fair to say the Leafs have not been an elite team. Yeah. And getting Jan Ruda, getting Justin Schultz, getting, you know, basically any of the guys we mentioned besides Tanev and Chikrin, those guys won't vault the Leafs into, oh, now you got to take them real serious. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah. Like, to the extent that you, you think the Leafs need to make a splash because they just need to get better. Yeah. Chikrin has a lot more upside than anyone else we've discussed yeah um it is a note we talked about how squeezed they're going to be next season cap wise and you know chicken makes 4.6 it means that that's money you have to cut elsewhere that said that's a good deal for a player like him so his cap hit being locked in for next year is still more of a benefit than a drawback so yeah i would certainly explore this my concern is probably is that he has a lot of things that I think tend to get him paid, and I could see the Leafs bidding over high for him. But, like, if you, say, put the, the Jake Muzzin deal on the table, and, like, the Leafs are giving up a first and maybe Minton, 
and then like some other random lower end prospect. I grit my teeth, but I think I do it. You know, it's it's painful, but I would consider that. I think I think that that's the right move. So it's just a question of how high the price goes. Um, anyway, yeah, that's a survey. Obviously, the Leafs are not bound to acquire a defenseman. They may consider acquiring a goaltender, although I don't know that that's necessarily beneficial. And they may well want to get a forward um, at some point. But I think defense is the most glaring need, and that's what we've chosen to focus on. Yeah, I think it's the most addressable need. Like, I think, you know, what you would really like for the Leafs is, like, another Ryan O'Reilly. Like, I think that was a phenomenal acquisition last year. It -hmm. was exactly what the Leafs needed. Pushed everyone down a little bit. um, Bolstered, you know, both the top six and bottom six in that sense. But, you know, that's not happening this year. Doesn't look like it. So, yeah, I mean, you make do as best you can. You know, if I'm Brad for living, I don't want to sit on my hands, for sure. I Like, every move that they've made has been, we want to at least do something this year. But I'm sure he's also going to be factoring in future considerations, because this team is is a fringe contender right now. And on that cheery note, well, that, that, that about does it for us. So thank you, everyone, for listening. You can catch all of Mind of Fuleman's work at PensionPlanPuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter uh, at RV and AT Fuleman. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.